This is Season 1, Episode 3 of Adventure Rider Radio's exclusive moto travel series, Southward Chronicles, the ongoing saga of two riders traveling together on separate but parallel journeys. Jeremy Craker and L. West, each riding their own motorcycles, are going from Canada to Ushuaia and back. Today, they finally get to the furthest point south either of them have ever reached, For Jeremy, this is his fourth attempt to get to South America, and on this episode, a starter problem leaves him with a dead bike at a border crossing that needs to be towed across a border, and when they get their first glimpse of the ship that's supposed to get them around the Darien Gap, well, let's just say it's rougher than what they expected. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. All bikes need tough, reliable strapping systems, and Green Chili Adventure Gear makes heavy-duty strapping systems to fit all motorcycles. And you can turn any bag into panniers using the unique strapping system, all available at greenchiliadv.com. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure. There's no electrical, no vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm, so there's no exposed nozzles by your sprockets. One ounce of oil lasts over 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets, which everybody wants to. www.motobreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. Motobreeze.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manning. Hi, I'm And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since way back in 2002. And they have 45,000 parts and accessories online ready to ship to your door at a moment's notice. They also have an online fiche that's just amazing for looking up parts. MaxBMW.com. That's MaxBMW.com. Best Rest Products makes the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists. It's made in the USA, has a lifetime warranty. There are the place to buy Googletech filters in North America. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. This is Season 1, Episode 3 of our exclusive moto travel series, Southward Chronicles, the ongoing saga of two riders traveling together on separate but parallel journeys. Now, if you haven't heard the first two episodes, you should probably go back and listen to them first to understand the story. They're on our website, adventureriderradio.com, under the link Moto Travel Series. Jeremy Craker and L. West departed from Canada. They're traveling as a couple. They're headed to Ushuaia, the southern tip of South America, and they'll return to Canada and Western Canada. They're riding two separate motorcycles. And up until this trip that they're on right now, their relationship has been sort of a long distance one, and they've never spent this much time together, which is presenting many new challenges for them on top of the challenges of travel itself. Now, they're carrying their own gear, including tents and camping equipment, so that if needed, they can actually split and go their separate ways. Now, a huge milestone for, uh, for them, and you would have heard this if you listened to the first two episodes, is to reach and cross the Darien Gap into South America, because neither of them has made it to South America before. And for Jeremy, it's his fourth attempt to do this. I think it's a fourth. And that's where we're going to meet up with them today as they get close and then eventually get to 
the Darien Gap. Jeremy L., where are you guys? We're in San Jose, Costa Rica. We just got in last night uh, amidst a bit of a downpour and a thunder shower, and we're using today to kind of dry out our gear and relax a little bit and get ready for a push into Panama. Oh, so you're you're headed for Panama because you've, you've got a deadline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And without, you know, wanting to jinx anything, uh, currently we are on schedule and we have a little bit of a buffer um, to deal with any unexpected stuff uh, that lays ahead. Hmm. Has it been stressful so far, staying on schedule? <laughs> staying on well, schedule even sounds so stressful, doesn't it? Yeah. So there's a little bit of a push each time we want to stay somewhere, partly because it's beautiful and we love it and we want to see more, and partly just because it's tiring to pack up every morning, travel, figure out the language, figure out where you are, try not to get lost, find a place to stay, unpack, do it all again tomorrow, do it all again the next day. That gets tiring. So it's nice to relax and slow down. But yeah, we've always known that we need to kind of push to get to Panama and then hopefully we can slow down once we get across the Darien Gap. Yeah, it's it's the deadline that makes it tiring, isn't it? Because if you didn't have any deadline, you were just sort of moseying around, you know, with no, with no direction really, it wouldn't be any big deal. You might move, you might not move. Kind of, but there's always some limit like time or finances. We need to get to the southern tip of Argentina when it's the warmest. So if we take too long getting there, it will be cold when we get there or colder. Um, and then I only have enough money to last a certain amount of time. So I think that's always a struggle is figuring out how much time to spend in each place, what, how much time you can afford. Yeah. And, and that said, you know, we did leave ourselves plenty of time to get from Canada to Panama. And, uh, we have had the odd, uh, down session here and there where we've taken a few days to just relax. So it hasn't, I don't think it's been that stressful, but there has been that kind of specter of a deadline, like you say, looming over us a little bit. Well, you you have, well, at least Jeremy, you have a deadline for the trip because you have to, you only have 13 months off work. L's open-ended, but you have, obviously everything is is limited by finances. Are there any plans in particular for you, L, are there any plans to think that maybe you can find, you know, some work along the way or something to, to finance a trip to go further? Possibly. Um, I haven't even thought about looking for any of that. My plan is to just keep traveling with Jeremy and do what we can um, with our time together. And then when it comes time for him to start making his way back towards Canada, however he does that, then I'll start looking at options. Um, As far as Central America goes, when I'm looking at potential places to work, I don't think the opportunity to make money is very great. Um, But potentially volunteer in exchange for room and board or something like that could extend my ability to stay Mm, longer. Right. Yeah. I I was going to ask you guys about money. Now, you've saved up for the trip. Um, How how long did you both save for for this trip? Five years, four years. Yeah, that was Al. For for me, it was um, more like two years um, when I decided to start putting some money away. Mm, okay, so two to four to five years, that that's a lot of savings. It's a lot of time invested in this. Do you look at your bank account as you're paying your money out every day and sort of, I don't know, get a, no. a queasy feeling in your stomach? Just don't look at it. <laughs> is that what it is? Because <laughs> I'm thinking of. this, like, I know you have a finite amount of money, as everybody does, most people anyway. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking as you're going through, each time you stay at a hotel, that's another mm-hmm. few bucks, yeah. another few bucks, and it all eats away or a breakdown even worse. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've been pretty uh, fortunate. We've stayed in some very um, affordable places, you could say. And then we've met some friends on the way that have let us uh, stay at their house. Uh, we stayed in Panachel. 
um, at a very affordable place. We stayed in San Miguel de Allende for a week um, with some friends and things like that help save a little uh, money here and there. We've got some great connections along the way, partly people we met previous to our trip and partly people who just connected us. I was at Horizons Unlimited this summer in British Columbia and met somebody who said, oh, if you're going, you have to meet this person. And it worked out fabulously because I was in need and they were great help. Oh, yeah. That person that Elle met that referred to, uh, that was because of a a motorcycle problem with her starter. And um, that worked out just fabulously was in uh, San Salvador, El Salvador. Well, well, hang on before we get to that and let's come back to that for sure. But I want to jump back. Where did we talk last? Where were you last time? We were in, um, where was it? We were in Guatemala. It was in Antigua. Yes. Okay. So so the, the connection was bad. Right, right. So you've been in Guatemala. You went through San Salvador into Nicaragua. You didn't go to Honduras. Of course you did. Of course you got to cross through. Yeah. So We um, only stayed in Honduras for one night. Oh, that's what I was going to say. You you didn't spend any time there. You just sort of straight through. Mm -hmm. And and then Nicaragua and then into Costa Rica. So what was this trip like? Like what what have you experienced so far coming through these countries? Lots of border crossings. (laughs) Yeah. Spent a lot of time waiting in lines yeah. and then only to find out that we were in the wrong line. And then we went back to a different line and uh, the border crossings have been fairly tedious, I would say. But at the same time, uh, once we decided, Elle and I kind of got on board with each other and agreed. Yeah, It took about three border crossings. Yeah, we finally agreed on our system and that we would not hire any uh, local help unless it was like to help get us a photocopy or something like that. And uh, since then, the border crossing times have extended a little bit, but we haven't felt like we've been losing any money um, to illegitimate uh, people or concerns, you know. Well, we, we talked last time about you picking up the, the border fixer, if you want to call it that, uh, long before the border and then getting there and getting frustrated with them. So mm-hmm. when you say you sort of got it together, the, the two of you, what, what, what was your different modes of border crossing that you were conflicting? Jeremy, I think, would happily pay money to help make the process quicker. Um, Hey, this guy wants 20 US dollars to point us to the right lineup to make some extra photocopies. And he will. He will run and get the photocopies for you while you're standing in line. But that means taking your passport out of your hands and disappearing out of sight with it. I'm a little less comfortable with that. Jeremy's like, meh, where's he going to go? What's he going to do with it? He wants the money that we're going to pay him for bringing it back. So I'm not too worried. And it makes sense. And I see where he's coming from. But I really struggle paying any extra money. I'm cheap. And I also struggle because quite often my experience 90% of the time is when it comes down to the end of the day and you're paying and leaving, then he's telling you more oh, but I did this for you as well, so you should pay for that too. And oh, that's not the price we agreed on. I want this much money. And oh, my friend here, he went down the road and talked to the fumigation guys and convinced them to let you through without getting fumigated. So you should pay him for that too. And that's when I just lose my temper. And I I really don't like that part of it. So my take from the beginning is no. Well, well, also you spent you spent four or five years saving, and Jeremy didn't spend yes. as long. I, I mean, I'm not saying that you know one's hard and the other, but there certainly is a, a longer period of time, right? 
And there's a frustration factor with not knowing for sure what the process is supposed to look like. There's some really great sources out there like iOverlander for help at border crossings. But what one person experienced yesterday is maybe not the same as today. Maybe on Sundays it's different than Tuesdays. Maybe last month the building changed and we can see lots of new construction. So the last person who wrote what happens is not going to be accurate anymore. And having one of these guys to point you to the right window in the right building is uh, saving some stress and some worry about what the process is supposed to be. I think it's not usually worth it in the end. We did have a good guy in El Salvador. He was actually friendly, polite, and helpful and didn't argue in the end. We made a deal to begin with, bargained for a price, and I actually kind of enjoyed that guy. So then Jeremy and I, again, had to discuss <laughs> at length the pros and cons of whether we should hire these guys or not. Is it worth it? How much? And so after about three border crossings, Jeremy just said to this crowd of guys that rush up to you at the border and tell you how much they're going to help you. He just said, she's the boss and pointed to me. <laughs> so then this crowd of guys all runs over to me, all excited and telling me all the fabulous the ways they're going to help. And I just say no. Well, and you luckily, didn't you it, didn't say no that time. The when first time. First yeah. time I said she's the boss, we ended up with three Tremitadors oh. that we all paid. <laughs> so uh, it L sometimes... Um, well, she quickly realized that it's difficult to be the heavy. And, uh, but after that, we had another couple of good conversations and we do it without, uh, help now. But yeah, I'm okay with paying someone uh, a pittance for a valuable service. Um, that's how I look at it. Now I'm not paying anyone to bribe my way in front of a lineup. I'm not paying anyone, um, or we're trying not to pay anyone, you know, um, money that they've extorted from us. But if someone can save me an hour and it costs me $5, I am okay with that. The, the, the problem, the, the problem is the gray area when you're not exactly sure what you're paying for. So Elle doesn't like feeling like she has been cheated out of money. And I feel like, ah, paying a guy $5 an hour is reasonable if it saves me time and, and hassle. So it's a little bit of a, you know, We've had lots of conversations about it. Yep. <laughs> Five dollars an hour, I mean, is, is a, a steal if you really think about it. I'm, I mean, I know you're you're doing it by the local economy, but if you're thinking about how, you know, we make our money, five dollars an hour, I mean, that's nothing. Nobody's gonna work for five dollars. Yeah. You can't get a babysitter for that. Yeah. That's right. And L in Canada is quite a, a liberal uh, political thinker. So she's an advocate of paying people living wages and she advocates for like raising the minimum wage for people. So and then he's using this yeah. to argue <laughs> and, then, and then when we come to Guatemala and we accidentally pay a gentleman a living wage, she gets upset. Because but, it turns into often, not always, but it often turns into, well, now you got to pay my buddy this amount too. And oh no, did I say that amount? I said that amount per motorcycle. So it's actually double that much now. Oh, and this guy too. Oh, and one more thing. So yeah, I get pissed off by the time that happens. And although I don't consider myself a laid back person, I actually kind of feel like I'm a little bit uptight sometimes uh, when it comes to when it compares to L and <laughs> and paying people and uh, paying people really money back. for time. I'm much more laid back. Yep. But anyway, we haven't been using them lately. Uh, the last border crossing, um, well, this one, the one into Costa Rica was a breeze. Uh, the one before that was painful though. It was five hours of, um, just getting into the wrong line that didn't move and then et cetera, et cetera. I think a Tremitador or a border helper there would have saved us time, but we don't know. Um, in the end we didn't pay anything except for the legitimate fees that we got receipts for and 
we were both happy, although it was a, it was a tedious crossing. It was, was standing in line so long on a concrete floor that your feet ache and your back aches. And I just sat down on the ground. Mm. And it was an incredibly long lineup. It, I don't understand how efficient these things are and how so many people keep getting through the border when it's this efficient, inefficient. But but isn't that when, like Jeremy's saying, it's worth paying somebody a little bit of money to so you don't have to stand there any longer? We, we're going to talk about this for a long time, yeah. Jim, mm. if we keep – this is a dead horse that we have been beating <laughs> the entire trip. But there's come a to, lineup of all these people who are waiting for the same thing we are and you pay a complete stranger money to shove your way up in the front of the line and bud in front of all these people? No, I don't think that's what I want to do. Fantastic. And that's not what happens. That's a, not an accurate portrayal that Elle just painted there, I would argue. We saw one backpacker who looked like that's what happened. We don't know for sure if that's what happened. We, we think, I think that Tremidador found her the correct line that she ought to have been in. And Elle believes that that Tremidador ushered her up to the front because she was white and had money. So I disagree with Elle's perception of that. Um, but it's anybody's guess. What, what have you guys learned from the border crossing so far that you could pass on to other travelers? What would you, it's what advice would you give them? It's worth paying $10 to keep your partner happy and not argue for three days. <laughs> Sorry, you say, say that again. It's worth what? It's worth paying $10 to keep your partner happy and not have the same argument for three days in a row. <laughs> and, and I've learned that you might actually consider uh, for the border crossing to travel as separate individuals <laughs> on separate days. <laughs> that was actually a consideration. Fine, I'll cross my way, you cross your way, and I'll meet you at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. At one point, that was a discussion we had, yeah. Well, what about well, if you wasn't. guys approach a border and, and each take the different route? So in other words, Jeremy, you you pay somebody for services. L, you you choose to not pay them for services and choose to stand in line on the concrete floor in the heat and, <laughs> and see how it works at the end and then sort of do an evaluation. Uh, yeah, and you know what? We actually thought about that, but exactly, guess what would happen? Uh, I would pay a guy for information. He would usher me to the correct line and L would see that yeah, and follow me absolutely. to the correct line. Uh, Jeremy, and are you then, saying she would cheat? Uh, no, I absolutely. would use my skills of observation. Oh. <laughs> so the only way it would work is if uh, she crossed one day and then a day later I came through and did it my way and we had a stopwatch. Mm, I see. Even then, though, I mean, it's it's a bit of a crapshoot, isn't it? Because you could have a different person. Absolutely. This crossing into Costa Rica was a breeze, but I believe some of that was luck. The guy in front of us who we met, who's also traveling on a motorcycle, and I think also going to be on the boat with us to Colombia, he said that it took him three attempts in the same lineup because the person working at that window was different. The regular guy was gone on his lunch break and a different person was filling in. And it just so happened that the guy was back from his lunch break by the time we showed up. And he did everything. He told us what papers we needed. He pointed to where to get photocopies. He stapled them all together and told us exactly where to go to buy insurance. So at an hour earlier, it would have taken much longer. Is there is there one thing that is troublesome at the border? I mean, is, is it just finding the line? Is it not reading the signs? Is, is there one thing or, or what is the problem? I don't know. I think the Tremidadors just hang out there so long and so often they know exactly who to look for. There are people who are very helpful. I find that people who are uniformed and behind the windows most often are really wanting to be helpful. And so when I say, can you tell me what happens next? Where should I go? What do I need to do? They're always saying, oh, yeah, what you need to do next is, for example, coming into Nicaragua or leaving Nicaragua. You need to find a police officer to sign this piece of paper. Well, where do I find a police officer? Well, out there in the parking lot. 
<laughs> and he just points. <laughs> so somewhere wandering around on foot is some guy. And he explained to me what he was wearing, what color his shirt would be, what letters would be on his shirt. So I know exactly who to look for. But still, you're wandering around in 35 degree heat in half your motorcycle gear looking for one single police officer amidst this mess of people. What I have noticed, though, Jim, is uh, 15 years ago, I did all these uh, crossings and it was much more chaotic and it felt like there were many more um, illegitimate costs that people were asking for and bribes that people were expecting. And on this when, trip, 15 years ago, you mean? Yeah, 15 years ago. Yeah. On this trip, um, we've run to the odd um, border fixer, whatever you want to call them, that was possibly, probably unscrupulous, but for the most part... The officials have been great. There's signs on the windows that say this fee is for this thing and it's official or all of the paperwork that you are about to fill in should not cost anything. So there's less uh, of the official systems taking your money um, to line their own pockets. It feels like it's a much better um, a world in, as far as border crossings go and police go than it was 15 years ago. I've been impressed. Are the signs in English? No. One no. or two of them are. Yeah. The ones that say this paperwork is free is, is in English usually. Hmm. What about your bikes? How have the bikes been holding up? We've each had a couple problems and we've had a couple problems with police too. Speaking of police systems and changes yeah. and that. Oh, but the had, bikes. Talk about the police first. Back in Mexico. Um, yeah, it was in Mexico, I think in San Miguel de Allende. One time we were just traveling around in the city on our vehicles and it's challenging. There's one-way streets, but it's hard to see. There's not great big signs. It's a tiny little sign on the side of a building. If you miss it, you don't know you're going the wrong way down a runway. And then um, there was buildup for Independence Day. So lots of parades and roads blocked off and markets getting set up and ready for the celebrations. So streets are blocked off where we want to go, trying to get where we want to go and getting stuck three, four, five times in a row. So there was a little one-way street, but it was only half a block and I knew it was the wrong way down a one way, but I thought we can fit. Motorcycles seem to be able to fit wherever they can anyway in this country. Let's just squish and go. And I did. And then a police officer stepped out from behind a vehicle, pointed at me, stopped me. And I said, I just want to go there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm lost. I'm confused. But I really just want to turn left right there. It's another 20 feet from where I'm sitting right now. And she said, no, absolutely no. And then she pointed and I thought she pointed like to turn around and go away. But after I collected Jeremy and we got out of there, maybe she was actually pointing to the curb to like pull over. And so maybe she was telling us to pull over so she could give us a ticket or maybe she was telling us to go away. Either way, we just fled, pulled the UE and fled potentially from a police officer. I think we may have inadvertently run from the law and, uh, mm. and successfully. So we actually got out of there, uh, no tickets issued. And then we went to kind of collect ourselves and... Um, get a little breather and figure out where we were going next. We pulled over at a, at a viewpoint and went in for a little bit of food. And then when we came back, uh, we were receiving parking tickets. And so turns out, you know, what's, how's that song go? I fought the law and the law won. Uh, that happened in this case. Um, what they do in, in Mexico is they remove your license plate when they give you a parking ticket. Yeah. So when I came back to the bike, the officer already had my license plate in his pouch and he was working on getting Elle's, um, you know, off of her bike and it wouldn't come. Anyway, so that was a legitimate thing. We did park by accident illegally and we were actually obstructing traffic. Um, again, it was all inadvertent. We weren't being asinine 
tourists, I don't think. We were just um, going doing what the locals were doing, and um, we made a mistake. And so we just paid the fine. And again, like I was saying about the police officers, 15 years ago, that would have been a classic example of the officer asking for a bribe. Um, in this case, there was no opportunity to pay a bribe, not that we would have, but it was all legitimate. It was like, nope, you parked here illegally. I have your license plate. You have to go to this office and pay the fine. And there was no, or we could just pay it here if you give me $20, mm -hmm. none of that. And there was opportunity. Like I was asking, so what happens next? Like, how do I get my license plate back or Jeremy's license plate? What do we need to do? Where do we go? How do we pay? Do you know how much it's going to cost? All those questions at any point he could have said, well, if you want to just pay me and he never did at any time. So it was legit. And I was appreciative that that seemed to be an official process. Well, both those things were, were your fault, really. I mean, you know, it wasn't, mm -hmm. nothing was set up there. Nothing, no, there was no harassment, nope. nothing. <laughs> They're just stopping you for doing something wrong. I mean, even if you are a, you know, a, 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 a tourist that's lost going the wrong way on a one-way street, which you, you weren't lost, <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you knew where you're going. Um, still, you, you're breaking the law. So, I mean, nothing wrong yeah. there. Nope. But I believe years past that potentially a police officer would have been more likely to say, oh yeah, it is a wrong thing that you're doing, but if you want to pay me, we can make this go away. Right. And that was not an offer at all this time. Yeah, no, and, and that's what you hear. Hey, how did you get the plate back? Well, what was the process for, for that? Uh, we found out where the office was, that they processed the fines, and the officer told us that you know we would be able to do it within about three hours. It would take him some time to get back to the office and the paperwork to be settled and everything. So we just rode back to where we were staying, parked the bikes, and walked because the like El was saying, the celebrations in the town were off the charts, people in the streets. It was easier to walk. Um, we found the building and paid the fine and walked out with my plate. And then we left the next day. So what about the bikes now? Well, I actually had to tow El across an international <laughs> border. Uh, her bike would not start. And I towed her into El Salvador, yep. which was a highlight for me. It's a highlight for Jeremy because the tow rope was brought specifically because I thought I might need it to tow him at some point. <laughs> Jeremy has been gracious. He's had a few firsts along the way. He was the first one to have troubles with his bike. He was the first one to tip over. So it, I appreciate that. It feels a lot less worrisome than when that happens to me. And of course, I dumped my bike about two days after he dumped his. And then, yeah, I just pressed my starter button and it wouldn't start one day. Kept pressing it. And then maybe on the seventh try, it finally started. I uh, was worried about that, thought I should take it apart and look at it. But then we have a million other things to do and it started again. So we just keep going. But the next day, that starter button just would not work at all. Mm. Yeah. So um, I towed her, like I said, into El Salvador and then um, it started again. And then we parked for a night and then the next day it wouldn't start. We tried bump starting it several times. To no avail. Shoving it down a hill, still couldn't get it bump started. Yeah. And uh, broke so, the tow rope trying to tow it and bump start it that way. Yeah. And then we took the uh, starter um, mechanism apart, not the mechanism, the switch, and we sprayed a little uh, contact cleaner in there and cleaned it up a little bit and fiddled with wires. And then we put it back together and it worked. Great. Mm. So, so then I shut the bike off and Elle was mad at me for that because she's like, what if it doesn't start now? I'm like, don't worry. We fixed it. We it's fixed it. We fixed it. And we put everything back together and I made a little waterproof cover for it. And I was feeling very proud of myself. I used a Ziploc bag to waterproof it and zip ties. It looked great. And then we tried to start it again. It wouldn't start. No. <laughs> 
That's what I was going to say. It's a, when, yeah. when those fixes are you, when you can't really find the problem, but you did this and yeah. you did that and you think you got it doesn't something work. and it works now. Yeah. yeah. yeah no, so what, sure. what did it end up being? It was the starter the switch. Uh, switch. Itself. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Is it a micro switch? Is that what it is on that one? Heck if I know it's a red button. Yeah. It's a BMW. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Specific unit. Yeah. Like that, that, they often have those device. little circuit boards that like it's a, it's a micro switch oh, on a circuit board yeah. with a flat. Yeah. Top. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what it was. So we, we took that in, um, L found out, uh, who the tour attack dealer was in, um, San Salvador and it was a horizons unlimited contact again. So he said, yeah, yeah, come on up. We'll fix you up. So we went to his, shop and uh, they put on an aftermarket uh, starter switch it looks very like it looks very much like a saskatchewan patch job um <laughs> it's not a it's not a beautiful bmw starter button anymore but it's highly functional yes. and uh, we stayed with uh, the tour tech representative in yeah. el salvador for a couple of days in a beautiful house yes. and uh, they were nothing but hospitable and then when we were about to leave the next day I went down to the garage and my tire was flat. And this is the second flat tire for my bike on this trip. Same tire. Same tire. So mm-hmm. picked up a, a nail in Mexico and that was a very obvious flat tire. The tube was ripped to shreds and that got fixed by the roadside pretty quickly. And then this one was a mystery flat. We, I took the tire off. We went downtown um, to get it fixed and these kids just did a splendid job with hand tools. They took my uh, tire off the rim and uh, they took the tube out and they searched and searched and searched and could not find any holes. So it, they put it all back together. It must have been a, a sticking valve stem. That's the only thing we can think of because it didn't look like a, a hole was there and put it back together. And I was like, okay, how much does that cost? And they're like, $1. <laughs> so like, okay, here's $2. Thank you for your help. And uh, off on the road. So you're not changing your own tubes if you get a flat? I've got my, like in Mexico, I had a, uh, a spare tube, which saved me because these guys wouldn't patch the, the shredded one. It couldn't be patched. Um, all I did was I took the tire off myself and then we took it to a tire shop. They've got all the proper tools and took I'm the running. Wheel off. A, yeah, sorry. took the wheel off. Mm-hmm. Um, and took that to a tire shop where they had all the proper tools for breaking the bead and reassembling it and everything. And that was lucky as well. That was Independence Day. So I'm thinking the biggest holiday in the country, everybody's going to be closed. Jeremy's got no wheel because he took it off. So he gives me the tire and says, go find a tire shop. And I'm thinking it's Independence Day. Everybody's going to be closed. What are the chances? This is so stressful. How far do I go? How do I communicate with Jeremy? (laughs) What's going to happen next? What if I don't know where to find? And I didn't travel probably 100 meters before I found a tire shop that was open and had people working. I had troubles communicating with them. They were like motorcycle tires. No, we only do car tires. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't need the whole tire replaced. I just need a new tube, but I didn't know the word for tube. So finally, I just showed him the tube and showed him the tire after traveling back to Jeremy to get the pieces and said, can you put this inside of this? And they said, yes. And I said, "Okay, beautiful. Yeah, we have all the tools that we can do this roadside. um, But with the cost effective labor in Central America and tire shops everywhere, um, we saved kind of the dirtiest part of the job for the professionals. <laughs> and I've got a, a hide now on the back, which is notoriously mm, um, difficult, hard. Yeah. Mm. So yes, we could take it off with our little tire levers, but it would 
probably require a lot of sweat and curse words. So uh, we, we saved that part for the the pros. But but so you're set up though that if you have to, you can do it because you, you yeah. mean, even that was stressful. Obviously for L to go and look for a, a shop, whereas yeah. otherwise you, you could just do it yourself. And you're you're both on bikes with uh, tubes in your tires. No, I have tubeless. Oh, you have tubeless tires. You have the cast rims on yours. Yours is a 700. Yes, that's right, yeah. I see. And do you have plugs for that? Yep, I have a little uh, plug kit that I hope is still good. It was, we've been getting soaked a lot in the rain, but in that little Pelican case all tucked away, I have all the tools. Hmm. What about um? What about gear? I, I know that at one point when we talked, you guys had been sending back a bunch of gear you found you had way too much. Have you got it down now? It's down, but I still feel heavy. I wish I could lighten up a little bit. I think I have a lot more clothes than Jeremy does. And I hope probably any female traveling with a male counterpart would have the same situation. But I think I have too much clothing. And I picked up another T-shirt in El Salvador, which I like a lot. It's hard not to collect things along the way and keep adding to the weight. Books, clothing, things that you see, little trinkets and stuff you want to take home. I have to remember I'm not going home for a long time. Don't start picking up stuff like that. Yeah, uh, we got a couple of t-shirts. Shout out again to the Tour Tech uh, folks there in El Salvador. What was his name? Mario. Mario, yep. Um, Super hospitable and like, again. But, um, you know, we've got probably an excess of, uh, not to beat a dead horse again, but we've got two pots and pan sets and two stoves and two tents. Um, We could have split that gear up a little bit. Uh, And I've got a mandolin for crying out loud, so... (laughs) Um, we but, are but the gear a, though, Jeremy, let me interrupt, the, the gear there that you're bringing, that was designed, right? I mean, you did that on mm-hmm. purpose. That's not, you know, yeah. you guys making a mistake. That's right. And to our credit, we did use it all, uh, camping on the beach in Mexico. We set up two tents, uh, not because we needed space or distance from one another, but because we wanted to spread out and dry out some gear. And, uh, it was nice having two tents actually. And we had a tent for gear and actually we slept in separate tents for two nights Again, not because of any conflict, but just to stretch out. And it was uh, it was good. So I think we have our gear pretty well sorted now. By the time we hit Argentina, we should know what we're doing. We have gear and it's stinky as all heck. The <laughs> amount of sweat and rain and just you're just wet all the time. I thought we were getting the tail end of rainy season, but I just had a friend in Costa Rica say, oh, it's the rainiest month of the whole year right now. And it doesn't matter if you do up your zippers or not when the rain comes. Everything is just wet from sweat or wet from rain, and it smells horrible. So what are you wearing for, for jacket and pants? Are they lightweight stuff, or is it heavyweight? I have a climb jacket, and it's got a lot of zippers. So when I'm traveling at speed, the wind cools me down pretty good. But walking around in the city or slow city speeds, I'm just sweating continuously. And I have Gore-Tex pants with some vents in them but they're not waterproof. I have yet to find a pair of pants that are truly waterproof. When you're sitting on a motorcycle, you're basically sitting in a puddle. It collects in your lap, right? And that's the last place you want to be wet, but it happens. Yeah. And I've got uh, technical apparel as well, Um, jacket and pants, and they're supposed to be waterproof and they're good for, you know, they say dress for the, the slide, not the ride. And that's what we're doing because sometimes uh, we're wearing all this protective gear and it's very hot and it does get sweaty. The other day I jumped into the shower wearing all oh. of my motorcycle gear and I stood in there for about half an hour, but uh, to no avail. It still um, needs to be aired out and, and laundered properly. And 
It All smells that. like a hockey player's change room. Mm. I think it smells like a toddler's wetsuit. <laughs> oh, wow. Either way, we're, we're talking a bad smell here. Yeah. So you, you're going to get down to the stall rat and get on a boat with a, with a bunch of other people. You're going to wash Ooh. your gear before you do that? No. <laughs> I, I might jump into the ocean. Uh, yeah. You know, it can't get any worse at this point. Oh, don't do that. You're going to have salt everywhere and your, your zippers are going to bite the dust after a while. Okay, fair enough. What what has been the highlights for the countries? Like I asked you what it was like going through the countries and you guys talked about border crossings and I'm hoping that's not all you've seen. What were some of the highlights? Just the other day, we uh, were in Nicaragua on the island of Amitepi and we rode up to a waterfall, uh, the same waterfall. Jeremy rode up to a waterfall. I yeah. left my bike at the bottom. Yeah, we rode up to these beautiful waterfalls that I had visited with Trevor uh, when I was doing the the trip that eventually became motorcycle therapy. And I wanted to show them to L beautiful waterfalls. But, um, 15 years ago when I was there, I remember the ride being incredibly challenging and Trevor and I struggled with our, our KLRs to get up to the parking lot. So didn't want to repeat that. Instead, what we chose to do was ride only partway up to, uh, an intermediate parking lot and then hike the rest of the way. That's what I thought we were doing. Um, but as it turns out, uh, I accidentally did exactly the same ride that Trevor and I did 15 years ago, uh, with L on the back this time. So we're talking like cocker spaniel sized boulders and, um, very loose traction. It had just rained. My tire was slippery. Yeah. It was, it was quite, uh, the chore for the, the KLR. I didn't stay on the back the whole way. I got off and said, that's enough. You can keep going if you want, but I'm done. <laughs> is it any different than 15 years ago? Have your skills increased or has the road gotten better? No, uh, the, no, the road is almost exactly as I remember it. I would not recommend riding up that with a KLR 650. Not at all. Uh, there was a couple of 125 CC motorcycles, um, that were in the parking lot ahead of us and two or three of them had crashed on the way up. One had a flat tire. One had a flat tire and, um, they were nervous about going down as well. So, um, do not ride your motorcycle up to that, that, uh, waterfall. That's my recommendation, but we did. And again, L was on the back for half of it. And then once I realized, oh, this is the ride that I didn't want to do, uh, she got off and we strapped all of our meager gear to the back of the bike, including her helmet. And then I carried on as a solo rider. Um, but it was so bouncy and so rough and so crazy that, uh, when I got to the parking lot, I noticed that L's uh, helmet had flipped off the back. It was still attached, but it was dangling and uh, the visor was scraping all against the uh, signal light of my motorcycle. So it's all scratched up right now. But the, the waterfalls were amazing. <laughs> I was going to say, that, I mean, that's what I was going to ask is how, what's so great about this waterfall that you'll go through all of this? Well, it's a pretty cool hike up this um, slow moving creek. And howler monkeys are yelling at you while you're walking through the middle of the woods and they sound loud. I forget the sound of them. I thought, oh, they're little. They're not so scary. But it sounds like a tremendous roar. And it's daunting when you don't have any other humans in sight. You're walking through the jungle. You feel alone and lost. And then you get to the top. And the waterfall is enormous. It's very tall. It's beautiful. It's shallow enough at the landing pool that you can walk right in there and stand under the waterfall. It's amazing. I'll, I'll describe that a little bit better as, as you're walking up there when Jeremy's went off with the motorcycle ahead of you. Describe what you're seeing there. Um, thick jungle. The path narrows as you go along and it's still slippery. So um, walking is hard. 
every time you step, you're not sure if the rock you're stepping on is going to stay stable under your foot. And sometimes it doesn't and you twist your foot. So frustrating. Jeremy caught a little video of me swearing excessively (laughs) at my delight of the slipperiness of the path and the sweatiness. Like, I think it was truly 100% humidity. You're just wet all the time and sweat's just dripping down your face, all over your body, everywhere is wet. Um, but the sounds is what I really find intriguing about the forest here in Costa Rica and Nicaragua. Lots of animals, lots of sounds, little spiders along the way, little lizards and frogs jumping in front of your pathway and monkeys all over. Not at that waterfall, but elsewhere on the island, we Mm -hmm. stopped because we heard some howler monkeys and looked up and saw a group of them in the trees. They crap on you if you stand underneath them like you can hear the sound of all kinds of stuff landing (laughs) on the ground very near around and beside you and they i don't know if they don't like humans or they just are noticing that you're staring at them so they're trying to say something but it's a wildlife that we certainly don't get in canada what about colors Mm -hmm. flowers in costa rica are amazing birds of paradise growing at the side of the road like six feet tall. And I don't know the names of all the other flowers, but so many, so colorful all over the place. It's like this thick um, blanket of green and then polka dots of vibrant, you know, pink and orange and yellow. And uh, it's it's almost psychedelic sometimes. And sometimes the light seems to be coming from the trees as opposed to shining through the leaves. It's um, as Tom Robbins would say in his book, uh, Fierce Invalids Home from Hot Climates. It's quite vivid the jungle. Now, Jeremy, uh, a couple episodes ago, um, when we were talking, I think I asked Elle what the, what the trip meant to her. And I didn't get around to asking you and, and maybe it's changed now because you're ways into the trip, but what is this trip about for you? Yeah. I remember when you asked Elle that question, it was fairly early days of the trip. And I remember thinking that for me, the trip was about letting go uh, physically letting go of excess gear and clothing that I didn't need and realizing actually that I don't need all of this stuff. Um, realizing how little one does need to, to lead this kind of vagabond life. Um, and you know, evaluating every piece of gear and equipment for what it can do for you, how it can serve you as opposed to, you know, you living in service for material possessions, let's say, So I need my motorcycle. I needed to be healthy. I kind of need my computer and a camera or two, but I don't need, um, you know, name any luxury item that one would carry. I don't need this. I'm sending it home. So for me, it's about letting go and also letting go of, um, kind of the worry and stress of the, the everyday. Like when you're on the trip, things boil down to a very simplistic way of living. Where am I going to find food? Where am I going to find shelter? What am I going to do next? How am I going to navigate the situation? So it's a simplifying of life. That's what this trip means to me. And on the way I've been learning, uh, I say that with air quotes, uh, a lot of the same lessons that I learned on my trip when I, I did the motorcycle therapy trip in 2003. And I'm learning things about myself, some of which I don't like. And um, I'm learning that there's still at this age of 46 years old, uh, aspects of my character that need to, uh, I need to maybe rein in a little bit, or maybe I can develop in a positive way. So it's about reflection and, and growth and realizing that again, I need to be 
continually exposed to the same lessons. I can't entirely say that I've learned everything. L, um, as far as the relationship goes, has anything changed? We've had a few interesting conversations. We've had a few moments where we've needed to um, debrief and check in. Um, the Th- communication systems. These are all guarded systems. words you're using. So, <laughs> yeah. so you've had arguments. Yep. You've had some good yep. arguments, which is, that's normal, right? That's couples. Yeah. yeah. I think for, what are we at? Day 54 of being together every single day, we're doing pretty darn good. And sometimes shutting that comm system off and just saying goodbye is a helpful thing in the moment. And don't keep talking right now, <laughs> especially in traffic when one person is like, just go. And the other person's like, no, I can't. And yeah, just shut it off. Do what you need to do. <laughs> I hear late. Jeremy chuckling there because <laughs> this is obviously a thing you guys have developed where you're getting pissy with one another and shutting the comms off. Yeah. There's been a couple. And honestly, I got to give Jeremy credit too, because just yesterday coming into San Jose, traffic was thick. Our timing was probably not the greatest coming in at rush hour traffic. And he was, of as all motorcycles do, splitting lanes, but we have luggage. So we're fatter than most motorcycles and it's hard to squish in between vehicles. So he's doing a good job squishing. He's three vehicles ahead of me. Now he's four vehicles ahead of me. Now I can't see him anymore. And the last thing I heard him say was, we're going to turn right soon. And then the comm system cuts off. So I don't know where he is. I know we're going to turn somewhere, but I don't know where. And I can't fit where I want to go. And my stress is high. So when the comm system did turn back on again when we were in range, I was elevated in my tone of voice for sure. (laughs) And he just stayed calm. And that was a good thing. He gets credit for that later. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy, do do you not think that, um, think about adjusting your, your driving or your riding rather because you're getting too far separated? Yeah, and I have uh, adjusted my riding. Usually when I get quite a ways in front of L, it's when I get too excited because I'm on a gravel road and yeah. I just want to just ride as fast as I want to uh, or maybe some really twisty road um, and maybe there's some questionable passes that I can make too. That's when I get a little bit far ahead of L. But if there's no like major intersection that she could get lost at, then I'll ride ahead. Uh, in this case, I was having fun splitting lanes and I could basically see her for most of the time. And then when the first major turnoff came, I pulled over and just waited mm-hmm. until I knew the comm system would come back in. And again, thanks to Motology School for providing the communication system. Um, so I just waited until I could hear Elle again mm-hmm. and then uh, she could see me and um, and if but, I'm too stressed out paying attention to vehicles, he'll yell at me. I'm right here. Look to your right. Oh, there you are. You did wait for me. Okay. And how far away from the stall rat are you? We're pretty close. Um, we are bound to get on the boat on the 18th, mm-hmm. but we will be in Panama before that and probably sleeping the night before where we're going to be loading. So we're crossing into the country of Panama probably in two days. Mm-hmm. Any apprehensions here yet? Nope. Uh, I think excitement. This is the point where I get to be further than I've ever been before. I feel like this is like the next stage. I've even had some dreams about it. Yeah, the trip is beginning now at the boat. Yeah, I've always kind of felt like Central America was the approach to the trip. And in hindsight, I think that was the wrong way to look at it. I should have been more uh, focused and in the moment and enjoyed the countries that I was in as opposed to the ones I'm looking forward to seeing. But uh, once I get to Colombia, um, that's when I will breathe a huge sigh of relief. And right now there's some, I guess, political turmoil going on in Ecuador. We'll have to see what's going on there 
when we arrive at that border, but uh, that's that's in the future. Um, right now, I'm just looking forward to the stall rod, getting to Colombia, slowing down and, and enjoying that. We're going to take a short break to thank some sponsors to help bring this episode to you today. But when we come back, they attempt to jump the Darien Gap aboard a ship that is over 100 years old and can't hide its age. But it does have some good surprises for them. Stay with us. The Red Rock Garage is quickly becoming one of those must-stop-at locations in British Columbia, Canada. They're located in Beaverdell on Highway 33. The Red Rock Garage is a coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. They not only have coffee, fuel, even an electric charging station if you ride an electric bike. They also have a B&B, a campground, cabins to rent, and they are surrounded by some incredible riding opportunities, both dirt and paved. So, Look up the Red Rock Garage in Beaverdale, British Columbia. Their website is redrockgarage.ca. And of course, make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Redrockgarage.ca. You know, a huge improvement that you can make to get control of your adventure bike is replacing those stock pegs with a set of IMS foot pegs. They have a full line of foot pegs that are designed for the way you ride. That's where you go through their lineup and you choose the one that suits you and the way you ride, not the one that was shipped on your bike for the way everybody rides. IMS uses CAST certified 17-4 stainless steel, a certified heat treating process. They ship with a lifetime warranty imsproducts.com. Make sure you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's imsproducts.com. Okay, so, so far we've heard Jeremy and Elle heading for the Stallrat, a sailing ship that takes passengers and motorcycles from Panama to Colombia, effectively jumping the Darien Gap, which you're forced to do because there's no roads connecting North and South America. This is the point that they've been sort of really looking forward to because for them, it symbolizes the real adventure beginning. Up until now, Al and Jeremy have not been past Panama heading south. And they both have said that they feel like this is the point where the trip really starts. Jeremy L, welcome back. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be back. Now, the last time we talked, um, I, I believe you were in Costa Rica. You were um, headed for the stall rant. That was your your deadline. You had a, a date of, what was it, what, the 18th of October or something? That's yeah, right. October 18. And that's the only thing on this entire journey that we've had kind of had scheduled. So it was a bit of a stressor and um, we were heading that way. Right. And the thing is with this, with the stall route, this is sort of symbolic because when we started this whole series, what we talked about was you guys have not been any further than Central America, the pair of you. And and I, right. I think, Jeremy, I think you said this, maybe you both said it, but that the real adventure was kind of going to start after the stall route. Yeah, uh, that's how I've always felt. And in hindsight, I think that was maybe... Um, it was unfortunate. I could have had a little bit more of an enjoyable time through Central America if I had just lived in the moment, as everyone is always reminding us that we should do. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were kind of rushing through Mexico and Central America to get to the Stalrat where we thought, or I thought rather, 
that the adventure would begin. And, um, and yeah, that's been the case for me. And even just the familiarity of it, not incredibly familiar, but we've both been before. So we knew that things like border crossings would be challenging and time consuming and a little bit of, oh, I have remember this place. It's my favorite place. Let's go to this place. Now this is new for both of us. And I, for me, the sense of excitement has ramped up as well. Mm-hmm. What was it like getting into Panama? Not too bad. We met a few other travelers. I think as the road narrows and the countries get narrower, we all have to use one of two or one of the only border crossings. So we met some people that ended up being on the boat with us, two in Nicaragua, Mm -hmm. one at the Costa Rica border, Mm -hmm. and then two more coming into Panama. So we've kind of congregated and got more of a cohesive group of bikers who are all heading for the stall rat. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the smooth sailing, pretty much. There was a bit of time consumption and bouncing back and forth between windows, but the guy was super helpful. The guy behind the window, no need to hire any help, um, pointed out the place to go buy insurance and it was visible like right across the street. No people stopping for lunch and making us sit down in the sweltering heat and wait for what appears to be nothing. I think we got through in about an hour. Mm -hmm. And then coming into Panama City, we maybe hit some rush hour and I was um, having a tough time navigating with my... um, system, which is kind of an ad hoc system. Um, so we got lost a little bit, but it wasn't too bad. We arrived at a, a nice hostel and it was very steep and we parked our motorcycles and went in to look at rooms. And I can't stress how steep the road was, Jim. <laughs> and uh, L has a better illustration for that. Well, okay. Thanks for the setup, Jeremy. (laughs) So we were parked with, and I knew it was steep. So I put my back wheel against the curb, left it in gear so I wouldn't slide away. But in the process of removing luggage to go into the hostel for the night, I thought, ah, the bike's going to wobble a little when I take one side of my luggage off and leave the other one on. I better make sure I keep the one with the kickstand side is the one that stays on longer. But the hill was so steep that when I removed the one pannier to the uphill side, the bike threw itself down the hill. (laughs) Like it didn't just tip over. The rear wheel was sticking up in the air, like a dog who lays on his back and waves his legs in the air. And uh, yeah, there was lots of people. There's a fresh air restaurant right in front of the hostel. So people are sitting out on the patio watching all of this. I had a great audience. (laughs) Did it actually skid like it slid on its side down the hill? It went up and over the kickstand, lay down, and then turned itself almost up, like the rear wheel was sticking up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. It was upside down. So, Jeremy, at this point, you just walk away? He wanted to take photos, but he has to decide how mad I'm going to be before he does that. Actually, it was funny because I had my back to L, and I was chatting with someone on the sidewalk. We were just struck up a conversation. L said there was an outdoor restaurant there, so I'm chatting with this guy, and he's like, Oh yeah, where are you from? And all this sort of thing. And I was talking to him and then I hear crash, bang, boom. And I turn around and I see Elle's bike is upside down. And rather than rushing over to help her, I saw that she was okay. I just turned back to the guy I was talking to and I was like, (laughs) yeah, so we left Canada August 15 and we've been kind of taking our time to get down here. (laughs) Sort of finished my conversation. And yeah, I did think about taking my camera out. It was in my pocket and taking a quick photo. But because L is very keen to take photos of me whenever I make a, a, a silly mistake, but I could see that she was not in the mood for any joking around. So uh, after I finished my conversation with this gentleman, we all went over and helped uh, lift the bike onto its wheels. I think there was three or four of us. Yeah, a few guys came over. That's a nice thing about being a female on a bike. You quite often get guys wanting to help you pick it up. Yeah. Mm. So we put picked the bike up and I did not take any photos. 
um, and uh, then we continued unpacking. You know, I, I've never really subscribed to the taking photo thing of when you when you have a problem. It's just never. First of all, it doesn't occur to me most times. But otherwise, I'm not really sure what we're showing here. You know, when you when yeah. something goes wrong, you take a photograph of your bike, and often people stand there with their their fists pumped in the air, like yep. it's you know, mm-hmm. like they've really accomplished something. I think I don't mm-hmm. quite get that because you haven't accomplished anything. No, it's just uh, for me, it's just documenting the the foibles along the way and the and the little. Uh, hiccups. And also there's an element of kind of calming the situation down and breathing a little bit before you rush to do anything like picking up the bike improperly Mm. or whatever. That's a very good point. Yeah. So for me, it just, it just decompresses the situation. And also I tend to uh, laugh at myself quite a bit. Um, and uh, I think that's better than getting really frustrated or angry. And that's what it is for me, I think, a lot. Traveling with Jeremy in general is learning to relax a little and laugh at myself more. And in those moments, instead of swearing and ranting and getting upset to just breathe and go, okay, fine, go ahead, have your picture. Now come help me pick it up. Yeah, yeah well, it's mm-hmm. definitely not worth stressing out, is it? I mean, because, you know, anyone mm-hmm. who rides a bike has, at least if they've ridden very much, they've probably dropped the bike at some point, had a fall over, done all the, you know, little things. And if they haven't, well, it's probably going to happen if they're doing the same sort of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, to me, it's not worth getting uptight about. Uh, but then again, I ride a KLR 650, so <laughs> it's not going to get any uglier. <laughs> you know, a, a while back we had Spencer Conway on and he ran into some major trouble in Panama. Did, did, you know, did you hear about that? Did, did you hear mm-hmm. the episode that we're, we where did we both inter- listen to that episode? Yeah. Right. So, so did you feel anything? Do you, do you see any indications that there could be something going on while you came through? No, uh, he was going the other direction. I don't know if that has any significance. Uh, and also I think on the episode he said that maybe he got caught up in some kind of like biker gang by accident. Mm -hmm. So there might've been a criminal element, uh, involved that was just simply bad luck. Um, I don't know. Uh, I was nervous about it actually, but, um, myself and L and all of the people that we met going through into Panama just had absolutely smooth sailing. So either they cracked down on um, what was going on in Spencer's situation or he just got randomly targeted or uh, like I don't know the details, but um, for us, we felt no problems at all. And I think the randomness is something to be considered. There are people we've talked to, especially on the boat with so many other bikers who've had very different experiences at different borders. In fact, the guy we met at Costa Rica Um, he said that he had been back to the same window that we were at three separate times. He had to go get something, come back, go get a copy of something, come back, go get something else and come back. And yet when we arrived, it was easy. The guy behind the window said, oh yeah, let me help you. I'm going to staple all these together. You go get copies of all of this and then we'll be done. And the thing that had changed was this guy came back from his lunch break Mm -hmm. and the lady working while he was gone on lunch was completely different and had a different system. Mm -hmm. So you could have the same border on the same day and a very different experience. Yeah. But I think listening to Spencer's thing, it wasn't just a bad border crossing. It was like mafia style targeting and extortion. Uh, that was a different thing than a, a bad border crossing mm-hmm. from the sounds of it, right? But, but it, seemed, it seemed to me that with what I remember Spencer saying was that this was a systemic problem. This was sort of part of the system, how it was operating. Yeah. And again, I don't know the details. And that's the thing when you're crossing these borders, me anyway, I am often confused. Mm-hmm. Like, is this official? Is it not official? Mm-hmm. What did he say? Where do we go? I don't know. So I am often just kind of in a fog 
And I'm not suggesting that was Spencer's situation. I know him. He's a friend of mine and um, he's very experienced with border crossings. So if he had a crazy situation like he's describing, first of all, I believe him. And second of all, um, it was unusual. Um, Mm. Well, he even said that too. Yeah, I haven't heard anything um, about that border like he's describing since or before. So hopefully it was an isolated situation. Well, you, you guys obviously managed to get on the stall rat. Mm. Let's, let's talk about the stall rat a little bit, about the, the whole adventure, arriving, um, what it was like. I know when you booked the tickets, you were even wondering whether you actually booked the tickets. There seemed to be some sort of, uh, I don't know, void in the communication or something. Um, but what was that yeah. like when you, when you sort of rolled up? Oh, it was just a load off of my back. It felt like such a, a sigh of relief. Um, first of all, the ride from Panama City to... Uh, Carty was beautiful, absolutely beautiful and twisty mountain road, very steep and the greenery of the jungle mm-hmm. and everything. Uh, just that alone was entertaining. And uh, once we got to the dock, uh, we thought we'd be some of the first people there, but we were uh, the last part of the first wave of travelers, you could say. So we were kind of early, but um, there were others waiting ahead of us. And we were just given the instructions, take everything off of your bike. And what do we do now? Nothing. Just take everything off your bike, put it here, um, make sure your steering is not locked, and then get on this boat and we'll have lunch for you. And leave your bike behind yeah. in the dirt on the shore and just go away from it <laughs> with without all your gear. any worries. Yeah, your gear is with you in a boat, a tiny little motorboat that takes you from the shore over to the stall rat, which has got its anchor down a little ways offshore. And when he does come to the land and load up all the bikes, it will be after everyone has arrived, everyone's got their stuff off, and he can just stay at the dock for a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. I can't say enough positive things about uh, the crew and uh, the experience. It was fantastic. It's mm-hmm. not, it is definitely not a luxury cruise. So if you're expecting to be pampered and there's one to, toilet for 20 some people. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's one toilet, but you can also just, if you have to, if you're like me, you can just relieve yourself off the side of the ship. Like you, and you mean a male. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, that's, well, actually, know, just back up and describe the stall rat as you guys are, are motoring up in the boat with your gear in, in that little boat, little skiff going to the, to the, the ship. Describe the stall rat. Well, when I saw it off, like when we first rode up and I looked at it for the first time, I remember thinking that it looked a little bit more rustic than I imagined it to be. Aged? Yeah. Mm. Um, In a good way? Well, I was a little bit disconcerted, I suppose. Um, it's a hundred and some years old, the boat itself? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it was freshly painted and stuff like this. It just looked a little bit more, uh, yeah, rustic, let's say. Um, but once I got on board, uh, it's, it's, uh, wonderfully maintained and, um, again, can't say enough about it except that, right. It's not a luxury liner. So well, you're not describe gonna... rustic, sorry to, to interrupt you, but describe rustic. I'm not sure you've really painted a good picture there. Yeah. Um, they just had some, some hull work done on it. So you could visibly see a patch on the, uh, the hull. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Al. Mm-hmm. It's a boat that was originally designed for fishing. It's not a huge boat that you, at first glance, think that you could fit 18 motorcycles on. And I think that maximum is 20 or 21 motorcycles. So they mm. could have put even a few more than they did this trip. Mm. 
And when you look at it, you think, where are they going to fit? So when you see this thing, you're thinking, not only does this look small, but it looks old and rough. Yeah. Yeah. That was first impressions. Uh, once you get aboard, um, kind of fell in love with, with the mm-hmm. ship. And again, the crew, I can't say enough about them. Even our uh, bunk was pretty nice. We got a double bed. We had a little curtain. We had a little bit of privacy. So if you want to just go down and read a book instead of stay up on deck, there's opportunities to find space for yourself. Yeah. And uh, once I discovered uh, they had a net strung out uh, ahead of the bow underneath the uh, bowsprit, I guess it's called. Um, and it's like a big hammock that goes just over the water. And once I discovered that that was safe for people to go on, that's where I spent a large part of the uh, passage was just it's, lounging in that hammock. Yeah, basically a giant hammock strung underneath the bowsprit, hanging out directly over the water, nothing underneath you. Mm-hmm. Very nice. But what, what about, so mm-hmm. get, you, you went and you had your meal. What about getting the boats, uh, the bikes loaded on the boat? We weren't allowed to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> really? I think he planned ahead. Yeah. They have learned, I think, that motorcyclists are not helpful uh, when they're watching <laughs> the bikes be loaded. So after lunch, they ferried us all off to an island where we spent the night uh, in a very rustic ho- uh, hotel situation. If yep. You can even call it Rest- that. There was not even a functional toilet in this one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, hang on. But- you, you've used this word a couple of times now, rustic. <laughs> what is rustic to you, Jeremy? Okay, well, I shouldn't use it anymore describing the stall run. But this hotel that we were at, um, it was on this tiny little island that had an airstrip on it and not much else. Uh, we were four to a room. And four beds, single beds on tiny little beds made out of rough lumber that weren't the steadiest. And maybe you had a mosquito net, maybe without holes in the mosquito net, if you were lucky. Yeah. And the floor was just unfinished concrete and a bare bulb hanging from the ceiling and the beds were saggy and... The walls it, do not go all the way up to the ceiling. They only go up a, a partially. So you can hear all your neighbors. You can hear the toilet flushing. You can hear coughing, sneezing, snoring, everything. If the toilet flushed. We had a, a toilet that did not function. So again, it was uh, upon us to find our, our own place to relieve ourselves on the island. Um, breakfast was included. Breakfast was an egg or two fried, a hot dog bun, and a slice of pre-wrapped cheese. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, but what they, what they did, and they did this very intentionally, was they got rid of all of us so that we could not watch them load the bikes <laughs> because we would be too, um, you know, we would want to be involved. And they're like, look, we've done this before. We know what to do. It doesn't always look pretty, but it's effective. So you get out of here when you come back to the boat tomorrow, the bikes will be under tarps, secured, mm-hmm. and we're ready to sail. Mm-hmm. Just like a mechanic who's working on your bike. They don't want you watching over their shoulder while yeah. they're doing it, right? Asking questions at every turn. Well, are you sure? What about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. Makes, that makes sense. So you, um, the, after you go back and you see all the bikes are loaded up and, and tarped and everything, you, you guys were satisfied mm-hmm. with that when you see them on the yes. on deck? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They were all lashed together. Um, and, the, you know, the kickstands weren't even in play. They were just secured with ropes. And um, we couldn't. you had to really try to find your motorcycle because they were tarped so well. Um, I did go and peek under the tarps and I finally found my KLR, which was right up front. Um, yeah, totally, totally happy with uh, the way that it was all lashed together. When they had two bikes right beside each other, they had little bits of foam or cardboard to make sure nobody scratched or got squished between two mm-hmm. bikes. Yeah, it was well done. Jeremy, you checked because you actually thought that there's a chance that maybe he f- they forgot your bike. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I checked just because I was curious. I wanted oh. to see where my bike was and yep, found it. And, um, uh, yeah. I checked too. I think there were a few of us who just wanted to check on our babies. Yeah. yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I, I think I would do the same thing. So at this point, then you throw off your helmets, you, you throw off mm-hmm. your riding clothes and you become yes. like yachties. Kind of. Yep. We were warned uh, that probably taking Dramamine or some kind of seasickness pills would be a wise thing to do. And uh, I kind of resisted it, but I did take two on the, uh, what was it, a 48-hour sailing? I did actually take two of them, so I wasn't taking them regularly, but there was a little bit of pitch and roll and a little mm. bit of heaving and stuff like this. And and he says we came at the one of the calmest times of year. Yeah. So mm. there was, like people worry about their bikes in the salt spray and are they covered? Yes, they're completely covered, but there was no salt spray to worry about really. Mm-hmm. And then for the whole two days, well, first of all, on day one, we sailed out a little ways and we stopped at these, uh, the last two of the sandblast islands. Uh, we, we moored there or we threw, put, I don't know all the terminology, but we put down anchor and, um, basically we swam. You just to the jump, air. you just jump over the side or climb down the ladder, or if you want to get a boat ride, but you can just jump over the side and swim to a perfect, beautiful Island. There was about three or four islands that you could swim from one to the other. They were that close to each other. Fabulous white sand beaches, golden sunshine beaming down on us, palm trees with coconuts, and they're owned by the Kuna people. So we paid a small tax, I believe, or we paid when we first entered their territory and that covered all of us maybe. And um, beautiful, amazing, picture perfect. You can see the fish swimming around you, crystal clear water. It was the stuff that dreams are made of. Yeah, we watched pelicans hunting and crabs and all kinds of stuff. It was we just spent the day there, just basically lounging and relaxing, and then getting uh, sunburned. Getting sunburned, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then doing in the, the touristy evening, thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the evening, uh, the anchor came up, and we motored out into open water. So we started sailing while we were gone to sleep that night. Yeah. So that's when I started taking Dramamine. I was worried. I did not want to be sick. Because mm-hmm. that's the and worst is being below deck. And and it's not mm-hmm. the, the chop that gets you. It is that slow rise, that slow mm-hmm. rise and fall that seems so innocuous. But after mm-hmm. a while, then the, the stomach starts to, to heave. Yep. And, and um, ginger as well is another thing you can take to try and settle, yep. keep your stomach settled. I had ginger and I had Dramamine and I had these little bracelets that are supposed to be acupressure. I don't know if they worked or not, but I put all three to work just to make her... So the the experience, I, I have to go back because I'm, I'm morbidly curious about this one toilet with all these people. How does that work anyway? I mean, in the morning, you know, when everybody gets up in the morning, has coffee, how do you how do you work that lineup? Well, there wasn't too much of a lineup. If the door is closed, someone's in it. So if the door is closed, you just sit down and wait. Um, maybe lucky for me, there was only about four women in total. I was the only female who rode their own motorcycle. There was one as a passenger, there was one crew member, and then there was one that was part of a couple who didn't come by motorcycle. They were just on the boat uh, without a motorcycle. They did have a dog with them, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and the doors closed, so you just wait. And I think if other guys came up and saw me waiting, they would think, like, ugh, we should probably let the ladies go first, mm-hmm. um, luckily. And then once you're in there and you use the toilet, there's a pump. It's not just a flush. So that pump is a handle that you really need some muscle to work. And you got to work it about 15 times before it actually flushes everything. So there's a little bit of workout every time you use the toilet as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what else uh, can you tell us about the stall run? Well, one of the highlights for me was I told you about that net out in front of the boat. So I was out there uh, lounging and Elle was out there with me. And 
Um, it feels amazing. You're out in front. The wind is there. You can't hear the engine, um, which we were under power from the engine most of the time. And then all of a sudden, this school of about 15 dolphins comes and plays right underneath us. Directly in front of the boat. Like, I'm surprised how quick they are, how agile they are. They seem to really love being out in front and playing with the boat a little bit, jumping out of the water a little bit at times. It was amazing. And they were so close and the water was so clear and they stayed with us long enough that we could actually identify individuals. There was a little baby and there was one that had a a certain amount of speckles on it uh, that was different from the others. And... Uh, you could almost touch them. That was just, for me, a highlight. And then later that same night, actually, uh, we were, the sun had gone down, and now um, there's that biophosphorescence, what do you call it? Bioluminescence. Bioluminescence. Mm-hmm. It's in the water. And so I went back out into the net with L, and we're watching it in the water. And then two more dolphins appear in the dark. And now they're jumping in front of the boat. And, they're and every creating. time they jump, there's more sparkles of that luminescence all over them. So they're yeah. basically sparkling dolphins jumping in front of the boat. It's just beautiful. That's that's incredible. Mm-hmm. And then the dolphins come because of the bow wave. They ride the bow wave. So it's fun for them. And the bioluminescence you're talking about, maybe you can talk more about what that looks like. But it, it's almost like a fairy tale thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does seem like it's right out of a movie. It looks like fireflies. It looks like you're on a dark sky floating through these stars, mm-hmm. really. it's And the more mm. motion in the water there is, the more it stirs it up and amplifies it. So as the boat plows through the water and causes some waves, it, it is higher. There's more luminescence there. And then when the dolphins are jumping in and out, again, the sparkles are increased every time. It's like you would imagine in a Walt Disney film where, where someone waves a wand yes. and all the sparkles come off. Yep. Yeah. It was fantastic. And for a landlubber like myself, I don't spend much time on the water it was like seeing something for the first time as a child. And generally speaking, the stall rat for me was interesting because it's the first time that we didn't have to think about anything, worry about anything, plan ahead for anything. Like I'm always planning ahead and thinking, where are we going to sleep tonight? And how much research should we do? And trying to get Wi-Fi. Now we don't have to worry about any of that. They feed us. They prepare the food. They know I'm vegetarian. They fed us very, very well. Do I want to lay down and read a book? Do I want to be in the sun? Do I want to go sit and chat with other people? That's it. That's the only other decision I have to make for about two and a half days. It was a great feeling to completely relax and just be in the moment. And I felt that fully for the first time this trip. That's an interesting observation because you could compare it to someone taking a tour. You know, if you signed up with a motorcycle Mm -hmm. uh, tour company, for instance, and you were on a tour, that would sort of lift all of that from you, wouldn't you? You've always got somebody who's going to sort of take care of you. Are we getting lost? Do I trust Jeremy? Is he going the right (laughs) way? Oh, we're making a U-turn again. Okay. (laughs) And So after the Sandblast Islands? Uh, Then more open water. Um, And that's where I took a Dramamine to. I, I felt okay. But uh, I wanted to get ahead of it. So mm-hmm. I, I took a, a Dramamine that knocked me out. Um, a few beers on deck with the fellow travelers didn't hurt either. That was interesting to be completely surrounded by just blue water as far as you can see in every single direction, not a speck of land. So we were out in the open ocean for, I think, 30 some hours, but part of that while we were sleeping at night. And it strangely to me felt momentarily a little bit claustrophobic. It's the opposite. You're wide open everywhere, but I can't leave the ship. There's no options. This is it. All the people that we have on the ship and me, and that's it for the next foreseeable amount of time. So there was a little bit of times I had to talk to myself in my brain and say, just relax. Don't worry. 
we'll be fine. Tomorrow you'll see land again. It'll all be good. So um, where does it bring you to? Cartagena. So we arrived in Cartagena. I don't even know how to pronounce it properly. Let's just say Cartagena. And um, the captain basically says, all right, this is where you're staying for night. Not me, though. I'm going to my home Mm -hmm. inland. uh, So I'll see you tomorrow. And that's that's it. He just leaves us there and we're moored um, just offshore watching these big um, cargo ships come in and offload. And we can hear music from disco clubs and things that are on land, but uh, we are still on the ship. So the next day, the plan was to clear the motorcycles and we could be on our way. But uh, there was a bit of a delay, which we were warned might happen. So uh, we actually got ourselves cleared the next morning we got a hotel and then the bikes cleared the next day so we had to go back to the ship and then unload the bikes an inspector needs to come and look at each of the bikes and make sure the paperwork matches the vin number on each individual motorcycle and that just didn't happen the day we were hoping it would so one more night Mm -hmm. it was just a a fun group of people Mm -hmm. and um, the experience was was amazing and they made the effort of clearing motorcycles and customs and everything just painless that was another beauty too we give our passport to the captain we give our import paper to panama to the captain and that's it they take all the custom stuff for you which is wonderful well when you get there and drop anchor for the two of you i mean it might you must have been you know sort of doing the high five saying okay now it begins <laughs> Yeah, that feeling of excitement. The first time I've never, ever been to this city. I've never been to this country. Jeremy even said a couple times, because as we're traveling through Nicaragua, Costa Rica, I'm like, oh, I remember this place. Let's go here. And he's like, where have you not been? Like, when is it new? And here is finally new for both of us. So what's the first impressions? Oh, yeah, fantastic city. I had to do a little bit of uh, work. I was uh, submitting a story for Canada Moto Guide. Um, so we got to our hotel and I just set up shop there and typed away. But even then there was flocks of parrots Mm -hmm. overhead and the din of the city was kind of, uh, nice to listen to. Salsa dancing everywhere. This is a hopping city. It's wonderful. And the old city is beautiful to walk down. You cannot pick a bad street to walk down for a radius of about two or three neighborhoods. Yeah. Just colorful, uh, flags and things going on above you and lights and, and like El was saying, the Latin music um, and the street food is, is pretty good. Um, I enjoy the, I don't even know what they call them yet, but there's skewers of chicken and potatoes and onions that they do on the street. And arepas everywhere, yeah. which are delicious. Yeah. So it, Cartagena, fantastic city. Good impressions, first of all. Any apprehensions? I mean, you know, you're, you're going into Colombia, which in every, most people's mind, is, at least in the past, has been notorious for drugs and crime and No, I think both of us knew that is more historic than current. Mm -hmm. It's cleaned up a lot in the last couple decades. And what we were worried about is hearing what was going on in Ecuador and thinking, are we going to be able to go into Ecuador if they've got protests going on right now? So we talked a little bit about that on the boat with the other members and found out that things seem to have settled down now. So we're not as worried. Yeah, for the time being. You mentioned uh, you heard about troubles in Ecuador and and then you talk with other travelers and and sort of feel better about that. Now, where are you getting your news? Is it from speaking with people heading in the opposite direction? Is, Is it from the Internet? We're not seeing too many people head the opposite direction, at least ones that we stop and talk to. We might just pass them on the road. Um, A little bit of social media, good old Instagram or Facebook when somebody makes a comment. And then that spurs me on to go ahead and look at a credible source, BBC or whatever it might be. Yeah, we did hear about, 
yeah, we did hear about some trouble. Elle heard about some trouble in Ecuador. And then I immediately went to BBC to say, well, what's going on? And they didn't have anything on it. So I was like, that can't be too bad. The BBC's not picked it up yet. And then finally they did, actually. Um, They reported on it and it seemed bad. And there was a general state of emergency declared. And there were roadblocks, et cetera, et cetera. And I immediately said to Elle, well, that's uh, that's a month away. The situation could totally change. And it looks like it has. Um, Now, it's a tenuous piece, I guess. The gas prices have gone back down. That was the problem. And uh, the protests have ended. But they could come back. Um, But even if they do, we spoke to travelers who were in Ecuador at the time. And they said, yeah, we're not in danger. No, we can't move right now. Uh, We're in our hotels and we're just walking around and we're kind of stuck. But we don't feel like this is dangerous for us. So um, it's really a matter of understanding the conflict, understanding the unrest, and uh, making some smart decisions to avoid hotspots if you can. It's notable what you said about uh, checking on the BBC to see if it was legitimate, and then the, eventually the BBC sort of catches up to it. Where, where did you hear the first inklings of what was going on? Was that social media or was that other travelers? I think for me it was Instagram. And how long did it take the BBC to get it? Well, I don't, I don't think they like. I don't think there was a delay because uh, the BBC was slow. I think it was a delay because the BBC deemed it not important enough yet. Oh, I so I, I think the people who were first on Twitter and Instagram um, were were yelling about it, and then the BBC would have been aware of it. They would have obviously had reporters on the ground, but they might have been like, "Uh, eh, this isn't really newsworthy yet. Let's keep an eye on it. And then it did become newsworthy. So they weren't slow to the draw or whatever. I think they were just more measured. And that's kind of why I check them. So you're not just taking the the first thing you hear. You're sort of looking for, and Elle, you said that too. You try and find another source that you mm-hmm. know, to check the veracity of the stories that you're getting. Mm-hmm. And then someone else was saying this too. So when the situation does calm down, the news agencies report that. But travelers will still be reporting secondhand information about something that happened a month ago. So sometimes the warnings tend to linger a lot longer than they need Mm. to. And you see that with Colombia as well. Um, So when was the Civil War ended? Um, Not that long ago, but it's been over a year, right? Uh, And even before that, it was a pretty safe place to be. Uh, The 80s was a very dangerous time for Colombia. And that's still frightening people decades later. Mm, That's a really interesting point because it still stays in your mind. And that's what made me ask you that, you know, are you feeling apprehensive when you're going into the country? So yeah, that's, that's interesting how long that stuff hangs around for, because Mm -hmm. really, if you don't know anything about a country and you hear something like that, that's going to be the one thing that sticks in your mind. You're not going to go back and go, well, you should check out some of the tours or geez, the the plant life here is amazing. You're going to go with Mm -hmm. what you heard, that big chunk of news. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So staying on top of things, and that's one thing that travel is good for, is it keeps you um, kind of in the current situation, and it also makes you think of things a little bit more critically when you hear them uh, from secondhand sources, I would say. We, we talked about, you know, sort of your adventure. You, you guys sort of had in your mind that the adventure, the real adventure, the new adventure, the fresh adventure was going to start now mm-hmm. where you are right mm-hmm. now. Uh, have you, do you feel yourself sort of shifting gears getting into a different mode? Because mm-hmm. maybe you can talk about that. Is there a deadline? How does that feel for you now? The only deadline now is thinking about weather and getting down to Patagonia. So we don't want to be cold. I don't want to be cold ever if I can help it. So we want to be maybe around New Year's in Ushuaia, 
generally speaking, it sounds like December, January, and February are the good months to be down there. Um, I'm afraid if we start pushing it from New Year's down to the middle of January or the end of January, then as we get closer, we'll find more and more reasons to push it further and further. So there's a little bit of a time squish there. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to see everything that I could in Colombia, I could stay here for months and months and months. Mm-hmm. So already this, why we're on the fence about going to the lost city is because that would be about six days. Mm-hmm. And do we want to spend that much time in one place or do we want to kind of still keep moving a little bit? And what do we want to prioritize spending money on? There's a budget to still roughly keep within. And there's uh, an outside chance that we might try to get to the Galapagos Islands Mm -hmm. or maybe even, and this is very unlikely, but it's possible we'll look into getting to the Antarctic as well. Well, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, we're going to have to talk again not too far down the road. Sounds good. Thanks, Jim. We always enjoy the chats. Thanks again. was Jeremy Craker and L West in Colombia heading south now. Now their adventure should really take off at this point. This was episode three of our Southward Chronicles. Hey, we'd love to get your feedback on this series that we're doing. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and send us your thoughts. And if you'd like to follow Jeremy and L, we have links to their social media feeds in the show notes for this episode. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and to you the listener thank you very much you can drop by our website adventureriderradio.com and click on well there's a whole bunch of links there but you can you can contact us through that and let us know what you're thinking of the show any ideas you have for upcoming shows and if you have a story you'd like to pitch well there's a link there for that too also there is a special page for southward chronicles set up so if you look in the on the website you, you dig through the links you'll find it there always information in our show notes and we've got another show as well called raw arr raw and that's a separate show you need to subscribe separately make sure you drop by the website and check out that as well and we need your support yes we have some ads on here but the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support 
We would love to have you in there. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent out for your pannier, your toolbox, whatever. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show, a shout out on our Raw show. And we would love to get you as a patron supporter. We have some incentives for that as well. So again, drop by our website, check it out. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. If not, well, I don't know. Maybe you got to listen to some back episodes, I guess. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. This is Nathan Millward. You're listening to Adventure Riding Radio. <laughs> <laughs>